Well, I hope it's this morning, but if not, a day soon that it'll be the joy of your heart, the strength of your soul, that you are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture, and uh, I'm going to read a portion from John 11. We're in 1 John. Am I on? Can you all hear me all right? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me in the back. All right, good. Maybe it's my ears. John chapter 11 And I love this phrase. We're going to look at the phrase, maybe the sentence or two, and then we're going to look at it more in detail. And here's where we are as a church family right now. There is nothing more precious than to have fellowship with God. Nothing. That's what you're made for, to walk in fellowship with Him. But John has warned us in 1 John, if we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, the reason John says that to us is because we're prone to do that. That's exactly what we're prone to do. To say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. So, in John chapter 11, the gospel of John chapter 11, part part of verse 43. He, that's Jesus, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. The man who had died came out. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us. Lord, I pray you'd bring people this morning, even now, from death to life. Out of darkness into light, Jesus is able. Pray this in his name. Amen. Hey, I got a quick question. You believe Jesus can do now what he could do then? Has he changed? Different power? Diminished power? Absolutely not. So let's look in John 11. I just want you to see some things that Jesus gives us a glorious picture of salvation. Now, here's a real obvious question we'll start off with. Where is Lazarus in John chapter 11? He's dead. What can dead people do? Nothing. You can go to that grave, you can go to that tomb and say, Lazarus, get your act together. Lazarus, try harder. But Lazarus is not going to be able to do any of those things. Why not? I know this is obvious, but... And often the counterfeits and lies of the enemy come at the foundational level. Why can he not do any of those things? Because he's dead. But I want you to see verse 38. Jesus doesn't just kind of casually come up to the, to the tomb. I want you to see how he approaches it. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Hey, what they're saying is absolutely true. He loves us. He loves us not cold towards you, unfeeling towards you, fed up with you. Love is patient, right? means unhurried. Love is unhurried. He's not rushing past you. Here's the good news. I look around the room, man, I, I love y'all, but I don't know everything y'all got going on, but he does. He knows what you woke up with this morning. He knows what you're hoping for right now. He knows right where you are. And his deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, 
everything that Jesus is going to say here is of such significance. So Jesus said, take away the stone. Now Lazarus has been dead for four days as we see. You know, this is uh, Mary and Martha. We've been talking a right good bit about them recently. This is distracted Martha's family. It's her brother. And that's a, that's a command that if you're going to obey it, people are going to know, right? It's not one of these half measures. And by the way, that's always, it's always how obeying the Lord is. We always want a half measure. Like he told us to do this, and can we kind of do that? So take away the stone. What does that mean? It means take away the stone. Amen? So Martha, and by the way, whenever Jesus gives you a command, there's always going to be somebody who objects. And here's how life works, y'all. Oftentimes it's going to be well-meaning people who object. I mean, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Remember Martha from her home, she's always a little worried about the way things appearances are, right? It's not something we do in polite society. Well, friends, again, if you're going to come after him, you deny yourself, take up your cross. You're going to have to kind of die to polite society if you're really going to follow and obey the Lord. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus articulates the stakes right now, right? This scene is about glory. The glory of God. Is God the most glorious one? And I don't know how much time goes by, but verse 41 says, so they took away the stone. In other words, at this point, Jesus is all in, isn't he? I mean, we're kind of past the point of return. The stone is rolled away, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Not a whisper, this is a shout. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I like how he's specific. I heard one preacher say one time, he has to specifically say Lazarus, because his is the voice that can raise all the dead. And he is going to do that one day everyone's coming up out of the grave. But he says specifically today, Lazarus, come out. I know you've heard this, many of you, a thousand times, but don't get lost on the power of the man who had died came out. But notice how he comes out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He's alive, right? He's coming out, but I want you to see that Jesus isn't done yet. He's not said his last statement yet, and every statement's important. So as he's coming out, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this is really helpful for a church family like ours. Who is the them? I kind of think the them, unbind him and let him go, are the ones who 
put the work in of moving the stone away, right? So, so we're going to see it from beginning to end. We're going to believe that God has the power to raise the dead. But once the dead are raised, we don't just say, hey, the dead are raised. There's still work to be done. That's what we're seeing here, right? Because this is a great picture of salvation. And can I just ask, here, here in the Gospel of John, John says, all these signs I've recorded about so that you'd believe in his name. In other words, what Jesus is doing in the physical world, you can see, understand, and get your, hopefully, heart and mind around This is about coming alive eternally, spiritually, forever. Have you ever gone from death to life? Have you ever heard the voice of the Lord say, Your name, come out, be alive. Now, there's two moments from this passage that we might say Lazarus was in darkness. What's the first moment? Of course, when he was dead, right? Of course. Stones rolled away, uh, stones in front, he's dead. That's darkness. But there's another moment, isn't there? There's another moment that he's in darkness, or or he's alive rather, but still kind of in darkness. Did you see it? He's walking out, he's alive, but he's still got grave clothes on, right? So in those days, because of what Martha is saying, you know, there's going to be a stench they put often the dead in caves and put wise because all sorts of stuff. I mean, smells and animals and also, you know, go into all those details. So they would wrap them really tightly. Kind of, kind of like a mummy. If you, you know, maybe you don't want that picture in your mind, but that's what we're talking about. Wrapped and tight. So it's not really Lazarus marches out. Lazarus is kind of bound up and he's kind of inching out. <laughs> Question. Is that what Jesus wants for him? To spend the rest of his living life bound up? Well, this is a picture for us. Even when you're brought from death to life, there's some lingering stuff of the grave going on in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? You come bound up with stuff. And what does those things, well, we're talking about sinful things, right? Ungodly things, old habits, old nature, old ways of thinking, old grave existence. Now, this is so important. We've got we to know this as a church. Who does Jesus tell to unbind Lazarus? We ready? Not Lazarus. Not Lazarus. Here's the spiritual condition of a lot of people in the room. You know you're bound up, and here's your spiritual existence. Trying so hard. Trying so hard. But the bound can't unbind themselves, can they? And we got to have this as a heart, as a church. The, the spiritual posture of our church cannot be, can't believe they're still bound. It happens so often. So often. It's the death of a church where the people say, oh, can you believe what they've got going on? Yeah, you know what they got going on? Some leftover grave stuff. And can we have the grace to receive this? So do you. So do I. It was limiting. Lazarus is alive, but at this moment, still kind of walking in darkness. Man, it's so hard in life to say, I need some help with some stuff. But we all got some stuff we need some help with. Amen? So Jesus has the power. Jesus alone. All right? So 
They can move away the stone, and they can start unbinding, but only Jesus can give life. That's what we see in this, in this passage, that Jesus wants him unbound. And I love this phrase, don't you? And let him go. We've been thinking about a question, and God asked it of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a real simple question, but when he comes to them and he says, where are you? And that's not a geographical question. It's not really an economic question. It's a spiritual question. And at the end of 2022, when I, asked my, when I, when I try to get along with the Lord, and the word that I would come up with at the end of 2022 is I'm just kind of hurried, frazzled internally. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we live in this culture where faster is always better, Right? I, I, I've been preaching these sermons, and I'm going to tell you, tell you, I was at the grocery store this week, flustered, having waited all of two minutes. There was a guy behind me, and uh, we were in the self-checkout line, and then one of those machines went down. And only because he did it, I didn't. He went, <sighs> I mean, uh, grocery store more stocked than any people in human history have enjoyed. And then we got two minutes, and we're frustrated, Right? And he left my line and went to another, and three minutes later came back, right? So we just know faster is better, but is it? Oak trees don't grow fast. And friends, holiness isn't cultivated in your life quickly. Sanctification isn't microwaved. Hurry can be the death of prayer, I mean, uh, here's, here's where I found myself. I found myself, and maybe you can relate, at the end of the year, and there's all sorts of contributing factors that we're talking through. The phone is part of it, right? Constantly, constantly. Uh, Cal Newport in his book, Digital Minimalism, says we live in a state of constant partial attention. If you're a parent, how many conversations did you have with your child this week that was partial? Like they're talking to you, but you're looking and kind of listening, but not really. And that's constant, isn't it? And then some old ways, old nature, still binding me up. So we're seeking, by God's grace, to say, what can we do to have real deep fellowship with the Lord? So I ask you this morning, if you are walking in darkness, is it because you're spiritually dead in the grave, or is it because you still got some things that need to be unbound? That's what we've been trying to do recently. And, and so we've looked at a couple of things. Last Sunday, we talked about a, a Sabbath. Your soul actually needs a day that's unlike every other day. A day where you say, remember we talked about this last week, enough. I, I, I'm not going to continue uh, when I say enough. Like you, don't, you, you stop worrying, you stop working, and you stop wanting. That's where we ended last week. At the soul level, I'm talking. So, so this morning... And I've got to go in and tell you, because some of you are like me, and if there's a fill-in-the-blank on an outline, you've got to fill it in. We're not going to fill them all in. I just need to tell you that up front. Think about this with me for a moment. Michael Zigarelli, you've never met him, but that's all right. Or maybe you have. Anybody know Michael Zigarelli? He works at Charleston Southern University, and he conducted a study of Christians, those who say they are followers of Jesus, across the globe, and he identified 
busyness as a major distraction from spiritual life. I want you to listen to his conclusion. He says, it looks like, number one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to to God becoming marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. That's an interesting study, isn't it? The studies are good. Scripture's better. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Only one thing is necessary. And remember, Martha wasn't distracted with much sinning. She was distracted with much serving. So uh, if you like alliteration, here's what we've been talking about. If you're going to have fellowship with the Lord, you've got to slow down, have a Sabbath. And our S word for today is simplicity. A lot of people talk about simplicity. It's kind of a buzzword in the, in the world right now, right? But simplicity. So, uh, again, uh, constant hurry of the soul doesn't mean that you're always breaking the speed limit and flying around all the time in a state of constant frenzy. What we mean is your soul is not having fellowship with God in any deep, meaningful, life-altering way. Remember, Martha was around the things of God, just not submitted to the things of God, and not just really listening to Jesus when he was in her home. So that can be the case with us too, right? Often at church, maybe go to a Christian school, or ready access to the things of God. You just don't really have a increasingly a heart for God. If we take inventory of our time, is, is it more Instagram, TikTok, Hulu, Netflix than praying, witnessing, enjoying the presence of God? We, we live at a time now that you can fill up every moment with something other than quiet, solitude, thinking about the things of God, having actual conversations with other living, breathing, created in the image of God, human beings. Constant hurry and distraction keeps us from really loving people, having joy, because it keeps us from God, right? We're tracking together on that, and we end up exhausted and thinking, is there more to life than this? And I want to say, yes, amen, yes, there is. So, uh, Got to outline, we will fill in a couple of blanks, so we'll start here. Jesus demonstrates regular practices we will adopt if we follow him. Again, I'm just giving a whole lot of obvious statements, but here we go. In order to become more like Jesus, you have to become more like Jesus. That's pretty simple though, right? In order to become more like Jesus, you have to become more like Jesus And only Jesus can get you to become or want to become more like him. So, um, man, we're going to talk about kind of a hard thing today. It's one of the things that tends to make us a little uncomfortable. Um, But it is something that we see in the life of Jesus. So if you're going to become more like Jesus, you're going to become more like Jesus. 
And here's one thing we can say about Jesus. It's next on your outline. Jesus was not materialistic. Jesus was not materialistic. There's a connection between hurry and materialism. Can you see it? Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And can I just be honest for a moment? Sometimes I take inventory of my life and all I'm thinking about is what I'm going to eat next. Anybody with me? Especially when I try to eat well. I have all these plans to eat well until I get hungry. Anybody? This is me. Yeah. I don't know how small my appetite for healthy things is until I try to eat healthy. And then the appetite takes, takes over. And those things can be true of food and, of course, clothes. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God. So, so let's just ask some helpful questions. Do, do you spend more time, attention, and focus into what you're going to eat next or what pair of shoes you're going to plan to buy next than you do on seeking the Lord? Or do you have a more detailed and thought-through eating and exercise plan right now for your body than you have a plan for the health of your soul? Listen to what Jesus says. Remember, he gives a parable of the sower. The Word of God is the comparison, and a sower goes out to sow seeds. Listen to the description of one of the soils that happens. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So if we interact together, one of the things we tend to be bound up with, it affects what we do, it affects what we say, it affects how we see, is materialism. And here's the materialism's definition. The worry of life, the deceitful of wealth, and desires for other things. That's what Jesus says in his parable. And where you find one of those things, you're going to find all three of those things. And what does Jesus say they do? They choke out the word. They choke it out. It's not fruitful. Friends, it's not that the word isn't healthy. It's that the receiving of the word is not healthy. Do, do we take what Jesus is saying here seriously? He's, he's our king who says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Materialism and fellowship with Jesus, they don't ever coexist. And I, I know, I know we've got our ready responses. We kind of trained ourselves over the years and we say things like, well, well Abraham was really wealthy. And this, this, this. But, but let's just slow down long enough to ask. Are you experiencing fellowship with God at a really deep cross of Jesus purchased way? And if not, Jesus himself would say one of the most likely reasons is that money and possessions are what actually rules your heart. We can agree on this, right? We, we live in a culture where the default setting is more money makes life better. A few years ago, our family, I guess it's during COVID season, and, and we just kind of picked up and started watching Shark Tank. Anybody watch Shark Tank? You know. 
We have children of all ages at our house, so it's not easy for us to find something that everybody wants to watch. And so Shark Tank became the show we often watch. And it's such a hopeful show, isn't it? And people walk in and they've worked hard. And the base of the hope is what? Yeah, working hard, but the, the whole hope is that one of these really wealthy people will invest in what I'm doing with the result being that I too will become wealthy. And, and that's a huge assumption that if we just have more money, we'll have better life. And I'll just tell you again, caution you, more money won't give you an abundant life. Only fellowship with God can. Anybody agree? It's not more money that will give you a better life. We've all heard the statement. You say, well, I know money can't buy me happiness, but at least a million dollars, and I'd like, to, I'd like to test the premise, right? It's sort of the operating assumption of our hearts in this world. The more I have, the happier I will be. I just had this thought uh, this week, and I've never had it before, but maybe it'll be helpful to you because I've, I've been thinking about it. When Jesus rose again and went back to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, how much, how much time do you think his friend spent packing his stuff up? Like, who, who's going to be John, Peter? Who's going to go get all this stuff? Apparently, all he really left behind was some grave clothes. Eh? That's a great picture, isn't it? Just left it behind. John Rockefeller, the oil tycoon, famously said when, when asked how much more money is, or how much money is, asked how much money is enough, he said, just a little more. Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus helps us. This is a heart issue. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He didn't change subjects. He's still talking about. What he's saying is, if you've got spiritual sight, you'll see things one way. If you don't, you kind of be trying to feel your way through life. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So here's a principle from Jesus. We worry, or maybe another way of saying it is we think a lot about what it is we worship. The only worship that doesn't lead to worry is the worship of Jesus. Because he's saying, he's warning these people that, that uh, possessions can become what you worship. And so in verse 25, therefore I tell you not to be anxious about your life. We read this or quoted earlier, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on. We might say, don't worry about your next outfit and uh, where you're going to eat lunch. 
that life is more than that. But here's the reality. For some people, life isn't more than that. That's what they live for. So, give you a couple of rules. Y'all like rules? Some people don't like rules. Rules about how we use our money that I think are rooted in Scripture. And uh, when I was, when I was uh, younger, somebody gave me these rules. And <laughs> so I've tried to th- think about them. Number one, man, this is tough. Number one, don't impulse buy. They've made it real easy, haven't they? Amazon's got this thing called One Click. Anybody? Can you do that? Just do this with me. If you've got a pew in front of you. On the count of three, we're going to go like this. You ready? One, two, three. That was so easy, wasn't it? Have, have you had an Amazon package show up at your house and you didn't even know what it was? Impulse buy. Man, I can be bad about that. You see how these go together? If you're spending a lot of time on uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, da, 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 you, you know, they're not just doing that to be nice. There's advertising involved, right? And they want to, have you ever gone on, hey, I just want to see you check in on so-and-so at Instagram and he went there and then he went, there's an ad and then he clicked on that and then three seconds later you're buying something. He didn't even go on there to look at So much of my spending can be spur of the moment, and the technology's made it so easy. But if you exercise a little self-control, and the moment passes, and you say, let a day go by, often the impulse goes away. And you tend to end up with less stuff you don't really want, and in many of my cases, don't really need. Now, you're not going to hear this anywhere else, I don't think, in, in, the, in the culture around. As a general rule, when you see an item you want, just wait for a little while. Just wait. And, and the larger the item and the more it costs, the longer you should wait. Think about it. Pray about it. Now, Because uh, here's where the spiritual enemy would love for you to get. He would love for you to live in this, uh, in, in this way. My spiritual life... And my material life don't have anything to do with each other. And friends, that's not true. Have everything to do with each other. So, so I've got to help. Uh, I, I, I need the Lord's help that when I'm spending money, I'm saying what I believe about God. It's a great question, and, and especially when I'm about to impulse buy. Let me ask, what does buying this say I believe about God? Next. I usually talk about this when I'm doing uh, premarital counseling, but we can all hear this t- together this morning. Live by a God-honoring budget. Often when trouble comes in a marriage, it comes through finances, right? And I always tell the young married people, you, you don't need to be in a rush to have everything that your parents do and so on and so forth. We can spend faster than ever, but know where our money's actually going less than ever. You've probably got four apps on your phone and we can't keep track of it all. A budget is to your money what a schedule is to your time. And if you're not careful, somebody else will dictate to you both of those things rather than you under the authority of the Lord saying, here's how I'm going to use my time and my money. Because those are two of the most precious commodities you've got, friends. In Ephesians 4, Paul says... um, What does Paul say? <laughs> Give me a moment. Get a little older as we go here. Uh, 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let us speak the truth to one another, for we're members of one another. In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down in your anger, so as to give an opportunity to the devil. Let each of you do honest work with his own hands, so that he may be able to share with anyone who is in need. And I don't approach oftentimes my money that way. When I, when I get a paycheck or you get a check, do you, do you think to yourself, this is mine? Or do you think, this is what God has entrusted to me so that I can share and bless other people? That's the, that's the heart of God. Aren't you thankful that God's not a hoarder? Amen? He lavished upon us. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, lavished upon us His wisdom and His grace. So, so a budget can, can help you, right? Uh, Number four, actually it's number three, uh, cultivate appreciating experiences over getting things. Can, Can you think of an example in the Gospels when Jesus bought something for somebody, materially. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. But if Jesus is perfect, and the record of Scripture is, I mean, I know, I know we got to deal with the taxes, right? Pay your taxes, by the way, amen? You probably won't find a coin in a fish, but that's what Jesus did. Or Whose inscription is this? It's what Jesus is saying. You can only have one master. So, so I, could, I can't really think of one. Maybe you can. I'm not saying I'm right. But Jesus' interactions or transactions with people were never just financial. And this is one of the, oh man, I think this is one of the, just maybe say it this way, worst things about our culture of hurry. If we do tend to dehumanize one another. And when you're in such a rush to get through the line at the grocery store, you tend to overlook the fact that that cashier standing there is a living, breathing human being. When my two teenagers went to work for the first time, they came home with eyes like this, like I didn't know people could be that mean. Like they just treat me in a way that I'm like, why? Why? Hurried, hurried, hurried. I'm I'm trying. I got to the point where if I do order food out, I use the app. It's so easy. Why? Because it's fast. I don't want to wait in line, but, but we might miss opportunities to actually interact with people on a human level. But anyway, I'm not suggesting that Jesus never used money. Of course he did. We know that. The Bible specifies a, a, a group of ladies would travel and they, they did much of the giving. But I am saying that he shows there are better things than things. Conversations. Taking a walk. Man, when Julie and I got married, she always talked about, can we go please take a walk? And I was so immature and foolish, you know, I was like, that's the last thing I want to do. But now, you know what I say? Man, let's take a walk. Listening, praying, sitting at the table and eating, serving the poor, serving the outcast. That's what Jesus does with his time because that's the state of his heart. In a moment, we're going to have communion. And isn't it wonderful that we have a king who says, when I want to tell you what my heart for you is like. It's like sitting at a table 
enjoying a meal. It's unhurried. We're not trying to just fly through it. And, and then, last one, and, and then we'll look at one more scripture, is begin to recognize advertising for what it is. Most ads are saying the same thing, right? So when you watch a commercial, and by the way, they say we see 4,000 a day. I thought, wow, is that really true? But I guess when you add them up, somebody added them up. 4,000 ads a day. You're hearing, you're seeing, you're watching, you're driving by the billboards. So, so begin to say out loud what they've promised. And it's usually this. Your life will be better if you have this. That's everything from a candy bar to a car, isn't it? You'll be healthier if. Man, everybody in commercials is always having so much fun, aren't they? He's like, at the beach, what are they advertising? I don't know, some pharmaceutical product or something, but apparently if you take it, you go to the beach. I mean, that's not really what's... But it is kind of what's being said, right? Your life will be better. Will it? Will it? Here's the deal. Money and God make all the same promises. If, if I went home, that is this crazy illustration, but if I went home and there was a man living in my house that started to tell, his, tell, tell uh, my wife and children that he was the dad, right? That would offend me. And then now you begin to see that this is why Jesus, he, and, and it's not even close, y'all. I know that was silly, and I just came off the top of my head, and, and I kind of wish I hadn't used that illustration. So just move past it. Brought up all sorts of things that I didn't mean, and so that's why I, that's why I always write things out. Just stick, stick to forethought. And, but what I was trying to say is that money and God make all the same promises. And it's got to offend God when he hears money making the same promise in your heart that he does. If you have more of me, you'll, your life will be more fulfilling. If you have more of me, your life will be more secure. If you have more of me, you'll be happier. If you have more of me, and God has to say, that's why. And again, it's not close. When you examine the teachings of Jesus, by far, he teaches us more about money and possessions and their danger than anything else. So, recognize the message that is coming to you. Oh, uh, one more scripture. We'll look together before communion. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, It's one of the prison epistles, so it's helpful to know that when Paul writes this, he is in prison. But he is the freest man in the Roman Empire, you know. He'd heard the Lord say, come out of death to life. Paul has lived a life that is unbound. And uh, Philippians chapter 4. We hear verse 13 quoted a lot. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But I think it's helpful to see the context of what Paul's really saying when he says that. So Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at last, at length, rather, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul's in prison. He's got some uh, physical needs. 
And the church at Philippi has seen to that he has what he, what he needs. So he's saying, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. You know, uh, Paul's writing to the Philippians. And when he says that, I think uh, in, in, those, in those days, a letter would be read out loud to the congregation. And I think when he writes that, the people in the room or wherever they were gathered said, yeah, he is that way. Because when Paul was in Philippi, on one night he stayed at a super wealthy lady's house. Her name was Lydia. And she had become converted to Christ. And she, uh, I love the way it says it, uh, she impressed upon Paul to stay at her house. Some people have that ability, you know. No, you, I can't stay at your, No, you're staying at my house. So, so he stayed at her house. And within the same period of time, Paul was arrested and put in prison in, Philipp, in the Philippian jail. And the Philippian jailer was converted, right? So what's Paul saying? It doesn't matter to me if I sleep at Lydia's house tonight in her comfy bed with those satin sheets. Or if my hands are bound up in chains in the, in the prison. I have, it's an important word, learned. In other words, this doesn't uh, come naturally to us. We have to learn. I have learned the secret of being content. What is it? I can do all things. I can stay at Lydia's house and not be so impressed with her financial status that I'm not an ambassador of Jesus, and I can go to the Philippian jail, and I won't be put out angry at how unfair it is that I have to stay here when I didn't do anything wrong and, and not be a witness to the jailer. Do you understand? It doesn't matter. I can do all of it, not because I'm so great. That's not what he says. Because of him who strengthens me. So here's where we'll conclude. God and money make the same promises. Money does. Money says, I'll strengthen you. And there's no getting around in a manner of speaking the way the world works. That is true. There is a strength. There is an influence. There is a, 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 a power that comes the more money that you've got. We see that all the time in the world. But it doesn't strengthen you to love God, and it doesn't really strengthen you to love your neighbor. And the way we defined distraction at the beginning of January was distraction. Martha was distracted, anxious and troubled. Is distraction is anything that takes your thought, your attention, your, your life, your focus away from loving God and loving your neighbor. So here's our conclusion. Building on what Paul has said here, in a more and more and more stuff world, you can say, I have enough and I am content in Christ. And there are few things in this generation that proclaim a witness of the glory of God better than that. Well, this morning is a morning that we're going to observe communion together, and we're going to do that now. If you didn't get uh, what, you, what you need, you're welcome to slip out, get that, maybe get three or four and bring back to some, to some others who, uh, who need it. That'd be no problem. 
And as you're doing that, uh, I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 24, uh, 22. Luke chapter 22. There's a lot of wonderful things that we can uh, think about when it's time for a communion. Um, But Jesus used a particular word when talking about communion. He said that we're to do this in remembrance. Amen? In remembrance of him. You don't have to say this out loud. But I want you to think about... um, and it won't be long. This is another thing we do in communion. We proclaim that we are going to sit at his table. Amen. As the day is coming. And if, not, not, I was going to say if you were, but I'll, I'll say it this way. When you are seated with Jesus, what's the first thing you want to tell him that you're thankful to him for? Can you just think about that right now? In one way, you don't have to wait till then. You know what I mean? You can tell him right now. Father, I'm thankful. We remember his heart. I just love the scripture, don't y'all? It says in Luke 22, verse 14, When the hour came, he reclined at the table. Now that's a posture of not being in a hurry. And you think about the urgency of what's coming the next day at the cross. He reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Are we seeing this with Jesus? How he came to the tomb with Lazarus, and now he loves you. He loves you. Again, let's proclaim it together. Not fed up with you. Not tired of you. He wants you to draw near to him. I've earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Here in verse 19, it says, He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. I know it's a small piece, but I'm going to invite you to do that. Break it. Let's proclaim a few things about God. And the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not stay far removed. He humbled himself. He took on flesh, came as a servant. And at the cross, he says, broken for you. He, he, he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's thank the Lord together. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would weigh down deep in our souls. Convict us, assure us that it doesn't matter what the next advertisement is going to proclaim. It cannot offer us one single thing greater than what you have given us in Jesus. Help us to really believe this and remember your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.
Verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 20. Likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then I want to read to you from 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray together. Father, we grab a hold of the word all, all of our sin, forgiven because of the blood of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand, and uh, it, it says uh, in, in Luke, after the Lord's Supper, they went out by singing a song, so that's how we're going to conclude our service this morning. In just a moment, we're going to, we're going to sing, and uh, remembering of Jesus always points us to the great commission of Jesus. So I call your attention this morning, in your bulletin is information about uh, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. One of our partners in the area is... Uh, your Choice Resource Center. They got a banquet coming up Thursday, February the 16th. I would love for many of you to be at that banquet as we support the important work they're doing right here in uh, Rocky Mount. If you want to attend the banquet, I, uh, Pastor Blake, myself, we'd love to, to talk to you and get you pointed in that direction. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we're going to worship the Lord in song before we're, we conclude. Father, it must be incredibly significant that the largest percentage of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God has to do with our, our money, our material possessions here in this life. I believe part of what that must mean is that one of the things that would hinder our fellowship with you is having hearts that are ruled more by material things then ruled by the priorities of the kingdom of God. Help us not only not live like that, but not want to live like that, to really believe that we have a greater treasure in the kingdom so that we leverage our material possessions for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.